And we'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts this morning. We're in a series that we've entitled Unstoppable. It's the second part of a series that we've been looking at. We started under the heading Unfinished, looking at the first half of the book of Acts last year. And we learned that our work, uh, or the work of the church is left unfinished. And we need to pick up that mantle and carry that now into the 21st century and here in the Fox Valley area uh, to impact people for the cause of Jesus Christ. And we can have confidence as we enter that unfinished work because we have a gospel that is unstoppable and we're learning that as we've turned into the second half of the book of Acts and seen the ministry of Paul through his three missionary journeys and we're going to see that while the world and the devil and evil men seek to do everything they can to stop the cause of Christ that nothing is able to stop it does that mean we won't suffer no we will suffer we will have hardships we will sense and see persecution but the gospel will never be thwarted. The gospel will never be stopped. It was Jesus who said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we can have boldness and confidence to know when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can know that just as in the book of Acts, lives can be changed. Well, this morning we come to Acts chapter 17. Now we've been in Acts 16 and we move and turn the page, if you will, to Acts 17. And Acts 16 was the ministry in Philippi. And if you remember, this is a part of uh, Paul's second missionary journey. After heading out from Antioch, Paul and Silas uh, and their new convert, Timothy, and Luke, the writer, uh, make up this missionary team that go from Antioch, which is modern-day Syria. They head through um, the area of uh, the Aegean Sea and into what is now modern-day Greece. They make their way up to the city of Philippi, where they're able to preach the gospel and see a woman named Lydia who is a successful businesswoman in the city, excuse me, of uh, Philippi to the Lord. We see them exercise a demon and allow a slave girl to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through her healing. And then we see them get thrown in jail for preaching Christ. And God uses an earthquake that frees them in jail as they're singing praises to him after being beaten and abused. We see that the Philippian jailer, whose job is to incarcerate them, is the one who is set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ at the end of Acts 16. It's there that we get this little incident that takes place that once uh, the Philippian jailer comes to know Jesus, word gets out that the Philippian magistrates and leaders of the community had abused and flogged and beaten uh, Paul and Silas, both of those men being Roman citizens, which was an absolute no-no. You don't mess with a Roman citizen. You don't abuse them in that way. And they find out that they've done this great disservice to Roman, fellow Roman citizens. And so to get them out of their hair, they say, hey, just get out of here. We don't want to hear from you, and we don't want you to be talking about what, what we did to you. Just let's, let's just go our separate ways, and Paul and Silas head down uh, and continue a ministry. And we're going to pick up where uh, that passage sets us off, if you will. Notice in chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through these two A-towns, you can pronounce them on your own, uh, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in and as was his custom on the third Sabbath, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading 
of women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, that is, he, he allowed them to stay with him. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, that being Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security or bond from Jason and the rest, they let him go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things that were uh, that these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of the Lord was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as, po- as soon as possible, they themselves departed. Now let's just stop there. So what we've got going on is a, is a record of two cities that are being ministered to, that being Thessalonica and uh, Berea. And we need help to remember where is all this, because these names are just simply names on a sheet of paper. Let's look to the map of where we've been. So remember that uh, we started way over here at the far end of the map in Antioch of Syria for the second journey. And they make their way through Galatia, which is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And they take off from Troas, which is a port city and make their way from Samothrace, which is an island in the Aegean Sea, to Neapolis and then to Philippi. That's Acts 16. Then we go through the two A towns, all right, to the city of Thessalonica. Now we are told that uh, there's no ministry that takes place in A-Town. We don't know if they just simply went through it. Uh, they wanted to get to Thessalonica. And there's a real reason why. They want to get to Thessalonica because Thessalonica is the fourth largest city at that time in the Roman Empire. Thessalonica was a coastal city. It was a city that had been uh, founded by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had named Thessalonica after his half-sister who would then become his wife. Everybody in one accord went... Okay? And so this city was established four centuries before Paul enters it. It's a pretty big city. Like I said, the fourth largest. 200,000 inhabitants, about the size of Aurora, lived in the city when Paul makes his way through it. He enters into the city, and the city is known for all kinds of debauchery and sin, uh, and, and known for the worship of all kinds of gods. One of the reasons why religion, especially Greek mythology, was so big in Thessalonica was that uh, it was in the foothills, or the shadows, if you will, of uh, Mount Olympus, where the gods would reside. And so uh, some of the best views and some of the best opportunities to see Mount Olympus is in Thessalonica proper. Right now, you can still go to Thessalonica. It is a a big city. In fact, it's the second largest city in all of Greece, second only to Athens. Um, You can travel there. About 300,000 people call Thessalonica their home. And so what we will see is that he's going to travel from Thessalonica, spend three weeks there, and then 
get kicked out of Thessalonica because of a mob, and then they're going to make his way down about 45 miles, 45 miles to the southwest to the hamlet, to the suburb of Berea. And we're going to see that all take place. Now, I want you to know, amidst all of this, that what they hear, the Thessalonians know and hear about Paul and his team, is one fundamental truth. And the truth is seen in the text, verse uh, 6, notice what it says about these guys. It tells us that these men have turned the world upside down. How awesome would it be if that's what we as a church were known for? In order for us to turn the world upside down, we need to have a realization this morning that the world needs to be turned upside down. And some of us don't think that. Some of us think that the world we live in is okay. And quite frankly, it's a good place to live. And there's some truth for that to be true in our lives. But I want you to recognize this morning, as Christians, we need to recognize and we affirm that the world isn't in a good place, that it needs to be flipped upside down, that its ways and its thoughts and its desires and its pursuits and the things that make us who we are in this world run contrary to what God wants in this world. And as Christians, why we preach the gospel is we got to flip this thing over. And as soon as we recognize and know that, then there's this holy discontent within us that life as we know it and the world as we know it needs to be changed. And we have been sent out as ambassadors for Christ Jesus to change the world. As a church staff and as leaders, we will ask ourselves over and over again this question. If our church ceased to exist, would the community around it know it? Would they feel it? Would there be a sense of loss? Sadly, in our world today, there are many churches that could close up shop today and nobody would be the wiser because they're not impacting the community. They're not engaging the community around it. And as a church, we need to be constantly asking that question because we want to be changing the world. We want to be known as a people who are turning the world upside down. Now, there's different ways you can garner the attention of a watching world. Some churches do it through their buildings. They build these monstrosities, multi-million dollar buildings that are, are just testimonies of a whole lot of cash being poured into uh, a church organization and you drive by these places and you say wow look at that place something's going on in there I'm not sure what it is but it's a big place still others will say the way we're going to uh, make our name in the world is we're going to get a celebrity pastor and we're going to just paste his face and and his name all over the place and we're going to make sure everybody knows who our pastor is and instead of talking about what we're doing as a church or or who's being changed in the church we talk about who the preacher is or who the leader is because we want everybody to know his name still others we're known for a program a church is known for a program i have a friend who lives out of state not a believer and he will tell me all the time about the church down the street the great big church that hosts the biggest most dramatic and and uh, with all the pomp and circumstance christmas and easter presentations that people come far and wide for and that's what the church is known for maybe it's a a uh, a big youth group or a children's ministry or any manner of things some churches are known for programs well i want you to know and maybe you don't know this and you've been attending here for a while and you've wondered what are we doing here anyway 
Well, we're not here to build buildings. Quite frankly, buildings aren't all that important to us. All buildings are, are vehicles for us to do ministry. And I can assure you that the last thing we want to do is elevate this ugly mug anywhere around, right? It ain't about me. The Bible tells us that God will use anything. He used donkeys and he uses timbadals to further his gospel. And so this is, this ministry is not about me. And the spotlight should not be on me or anyone else. Thirdly, it isn't the programs we do. If the programs are about what we're doing and not what God's doing, then they're the wrong kind of programs. So what are we about? How are we going to turn the world upside down? Well, we believe as a church and as pastors and as leaders that the way we make a difference is by making disciples. Can I tell you, it's not very flashy. Can I tell you, it doesn't happen very quickly. But it is the model that Paul shows us as he enters these cities of Thessalonica and Berea that the way that you impact lives is by impacting people to become followers of Jesus Christ, growing them, and then sending them out to do the work that God has before them. The way we accomplish that is by living out three elements of our mission statement. We, uh, are, we exist, Village Bible Church does, to discover, develop, and deploy disciples who are all in, not only here, but all over the world. That's what we're here for. And that's what we're wanting to move you to. And we evaluate every ministry. We evaluate our buildings. We evaluate uh, our money to that end. How are we discovering, developing, and deploying disciples who are going to change the world, who are going to turn the world upside down for Christ? Notice, that's exactly what we see in Thessalonica and Berea. And for that as a pastor, I'm incredibly happy because we're doing what the Lord wants us to do. Notice, First of all, it begins by discovering disciples in the world. Discovering disciples in the world. Paul, once again, enters a city. And we are told as he enters into the city, he does something. And we need to recognize what he does. And it's subtle. And we run right by it in verse 2. And we don't think about it. And we move on. And because we miss this, we run the risk of missing how we are to discover people with the, call, with the calling and cause of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says in verse 2. We are told, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on, the thir- on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Well, how does it begin? How do you get to a place that you tell the world that Jesus is the Christ? The first thing you have to do is you have to engage the community around you. You have to engage the community around you. Notice the subtle word that is there, the phrase that is there. And Paul went in. Circle that. Underline that. Don't miss that. Paul went in to the city of Thessalonica. He didn't go around the city. He didn't go to a part of the city. He didn't go and find out where all the Christians resided in the city. He went first into the city. And we're going to see this not only in Thessalonica, but Berea and Athens and Corinth. He does this over and over again. He goes into the city and he engages the community around him. Listen, one of the great cancers that is eating away at the evangelical church is this escapism we have of stopping our engagement with the world. 
And we've got to be very, very careful. Now, what we do is we say, I want to be a holy Christian. I want to be a pure Christian. And if I get too close with the world, I might get stained. Amen. I agree with you. But that kind of mindset in and of itself is foreign to the book of Acts. Because we see over and over again, not leaving the city, not cloistering yourself from the city or the community, the people of God in the book of Acts entered into the city and engaged in everyday life with the community around them. And we need to do the same thing. And we need to do that, and we need to make sure, and this is one of the things we talk about as a staff, we don't want to make you so busy that you're here at church all the time that you're unable to be in the world. Because if we do that, then the church, then the world is lost and without hope. And so it is of great importance that we engage in the church life. Yes, we should be involved, and we want you to be involved in three things. We want you involved in worship on Sunday, We want you to do some level of service in or through the church, and we want you to be a part of a a weekly small group. That's what we're asking you to do. Outside of that, we want you to engage with your neighbors, we want you to engage with your community. What I mean by that is something that doesn't sound very spiritual. We want you to coach the baseball team, or the soccer team, or the football team. We want you to serve as the uh, the class mom for the for the party that's going to happen at the school. We want you involved in your community's um, uh, officials, like the village board and and the library board, and all the different boards and committees that are there. We want you to be a part of that. I myself am on the school board in our local school district. Why do I do that? Because I got lots of free time. Absolutely not. I do that because it is an opportunity for me to go and be a light in the world around me. It forces me to be involved in my community. And so what we need to do is we cannot view our communities with suspicion. We need to engage them because until we engage them, we'll never have the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And so we need to engage the community around us. Paul went in and we need to go in as well. Now, what's his plan? He's got a plan. He doesn't busy himself in community affairs. He has a plan. He goes in and right away he heads to the synagogue. Why does he go to the synagogue? Because the synagogue is a group of people who have a biblical worldview or foundation. These people did not believe in the multiplicity of gods that uh, Greek mythology affirmed. No, they, they believed in the synagogue, in God, Yahweh, Jehovah God. And they worshipped him, but they were far from God because they did not believe in Jesus. And Paul says, I'm going to start here. There's low-hanging fruit here. I can easily engage with them in a conversation about Christ, and I can show them through their Old Testament scriptures that what they're looking for has already come. His name is Jesus. Well, there are people in our lives who are sitting in the synagogues of today's life, and, and they are people maybe who, who have been churched in the past, they are people who would say that they affirm God and, and may even say they love God, but they're far from Jesus Christ and they're far from salvation. That's what makes Christmas time such a glorious time because as a society, we still have an affection to the Christmas story that even involves Jesus. And I get within our heavily politicized system, there's this idea that there's a war on Christmas. Let me tell you something. I go into stores and I hear what's going on. They're playing Christmas carols. 
They're, they're acknowledging a lot that we do. And we've got an opportunity to share as Paul did. The reason for you celebrating Christmas isn't just this, but it's something so much more. And his name is Jesus. Can I share with you what the song We Three Kings is all about? Can I share with you what Away in the Manger is about? Can I tell you what it means, Silent Night, Holy Night? Can I talk about what joy to the world means? We have great opportunities, low-hanging fruit with the world around us, and it's not just Christmas. One of the things that we can engage in with people is the felt needs that they have. I heard in our small group that one of the ways that some of our people uh, really look for opportunities and engage their, their uh, communities is by praying for someone and saying, can I pray for you right here, right now, for a need that you have? You see, what we're doing is we're establishing a connecting point. We're establishing a point of connection. Write that down in your outlines. We find a place, Lord, how are you leading this person? And so a person sitting in the cubicle next to you says, listen, I got to go have this appointment and I'm scared and, and, and I'm nervous because I got some symptoms going on and, and I'm not sure what's happening. And you stop me and say, can I, can I just pray for you? Can I just, can I go before my God and, and pray for you? I've done that lots of times, and no one has ever said, how dare you pray for me? Never happened. I think a lot of people just want prayer. You're not asking them, listen, this is important. You're not asking them to join into your worship. You're saying, hey, you care, you 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 matter so much to me. I care so much about you that I'm going to go to my highest authority, the person that I love and think the world of, that being God, and I'm going to take your need to him. I'm not asking you to believe in him at this point. I'm just saying, hey, I want to get it to the guy that I believe can change everything. His name is Jesus. And I'm going to pray for you. And one of the things that they will see is they will see firsthand your relationship with this God. And they will begin to ask, wait a minute, this person has peace. This person has joy. This person has hope. And every human being on this earth wants peace, joy, and hope. They've experienced love. People want to be loved. And and what you begin to do by a simple prayer is you begin to introduce them to the relationship that you have with God. There are a lot of different points of contact you can make with the unbelieving world that can give them hope. And they begin to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Now, listen, a lot of us, we say, well, I'm heavily involved in the community. Awesome. Step one. Well, I look for points of contact and and do these little things that just try to connect the real everyday life to spiritual things like Jesus did with the woman at the well, taking a regular occurrence or interaction and making it a spiritual one. But at some point, we need to do what we're told that Paul does, and that is he goes and he starts having a conversation with them. Notice, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. At some point, if we're going to discover disciples in this world, we've got to share the good news of Jesus Christ. At some point, we have to stop being just the good Christian who does nice things and prays nice prayers for people. We have to stop and say, brother, sister, my fellow person of humanity, I need you to know and understand that the reason why I have hope, the reason why I have joy, the reason why I have peace is because I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I came to recognize and know I was a sinner in need of God's grace. And God's word tells me this. 
And here's the reason why we live in the world that we do, filled with pain and sorrow and suffering, because we have turned away from the Almighty God, and we have chosen to go our way instead of His. And so what I came to learn is that Jesus came, that I might have life amidst such sorrow and so much difficulty. And I've given my life to Jesus Christ. And I want you to know the same love, the same peace, the same joy that I've come to know. Some of us have gotten to that point and we've stopped. The church in Thessalonica, which became the church that the two letters of the Thessalonian letters were written to by Paul, would have never come together if Paul had just done the first two points. If he had engaged his community, that's great. If he had established points of contact, even better. But we have to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ through the scriptures. Now, how does he do it? Notice he reasons with them. That that phrase reasoned is a dialogue. It is a casual dialogue that's going on. He's not standing up giving this great oratorical uh, speech. It's not some persuasive apologetic. This is an ongoing dialogue, sitting at a table around a meal. It's, it's this kind of conversation that continues to go on. It's not one conversation. It's a myriad of conversations. Notice what it's to do. It is to explain and prove. And so what you do is you articulate, here's what God's Word has to say to you, my friend. And now I want to prove to you, not only from the Scriptures, but from my own life, how that is true. And so what it is doing, literally, is bringing the person you're talking to closer and closer to the Word. That's what's taking place. Your job, listen, as witnesses and as ambassadors of the Gospel, is to take your friend, your neighbor, the acquaintance that you've come to know at work or wherever you found them, and to bring them closer and closer to the Word of God. Your job is not to try to convince them or change their mind. That is the spirit of Almighty God's job. Your job is to get them as close as you can to the Scriptures. And so here's what I do as as an employer. I talk with my employees about the Word of God. And I don't beat it down their throats. I don't beat them over the head with it. But what I do is I get them closer and closer. And what I'm coming to recognize is it's starting to catch little by little. Last week, we had a guest here in our church, and and he's on a journey right now, and he's trying to understand the calls and claims of Jesus Christ. And he told me when he first attended here some months ago, you got my wife, but you'll never get me, okay? And then last week, after hearing the message, he says, we've got to talk. Can I come over uh, tonight around 9 o'clock? And that's kind of anathema for a pastor, right? 9 o'clock on Sunday night. And for two hours at my dining room table, We dialogued about the things of the Lord. And we opened the Word. And he had questions. And we bantered back and forth. And I answered. And he had more questions and all that. Did he become a follower of Jesus Christ? No. Is he closer? You better believe it. He says, I'm right there. So what do we do? Do I say, well, too late. Blue light special's over. Or do I say, let's do it again. Brothers and sisters, we've got opportunities to draw people close to the Scriptures. But in order to do that, in order to engage, because listen, this is very important. If you engage your community and engage the world apart from a deep relationship with the Word of God, you will be a worldly Christian. Because what will happen is, is the world will tell you what to do. 
And so what we need is we need to have a relationship not only with the world, but with the Word. And our job is to bring the world to the Word. And when we do that, that's evangelism. If you think hanging out and partying with your friends and doing what they're doing, you're saying, well, listen, I'm just meeting them where they're at. No, you're being a worldly Christian, which the Bible says flee from. Don't engage in that. that. That bad company corrupts good character. Well, that doesn't mean we can't evangelize. What it means is when I engage with the world, I've got the Word of God in my head and my heart. So when I go there, I know to recognize the things that I could fall prey to and what the world needs to hear. And so let's fast forward for a moment to the second point. The only way that we will discover disciples in the world is if we develop disciples who love the Word who love the word. Fast forward now, Thessalonica, we're going to get back to Thessalonica in a moment, but Paul and Silas have to leave Thessalonica because people respond and believe in the gospel, but a mob hates them for the gospel and wants them out, and so they've got to leave. And they leave and they head down to Berea. And notice it says that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas because they're in danger. They sent them away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, They went into the Jewish synagogue. They do it again, like a broken record. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now let's just stop there for a moment. So they enter into a new city and they keep preaching. And what Luke tells us is, is that the Bereans are a more noble group. Now does that mean they're more noble from an um, education standpoint? No, there's nothing that tells us that that's the case. Are they more well-off, meaning financially? The Bible gives us no impression of that. What it has to do with is that they are commended for their relationship with the Word of God, how they relate to the Scriptures. I want you to know, I want to be known as a church, not for programs or a building or for a celebrity pastor who preaches great sermons, as if that could be the case, by the way. But I want us to be known as a church that relates deeply and lovingly through the Word of God, that loves the Scriptures. One of the greatest compliments that I've gotten from guest speakers when they come and fill this pulpit is that, man, that's a hot group out there. He's not talking about their looks, by the way. He says, they're on fire. They want to hear the gospel. And there's nothing greater as a preacher than to have a captivating audience, right? That's ready to receive. Well, that's what the Bereans do. They're excited to hear the word of God and they want to study it and know it. Well, there's a couple things that we see with regards to it. We will not develop disciples. And that's our mission. And we will not do it if we do not get people to love the word of God. Notice the Bereans, the characteristics of them. Number one, they approach the word of God openly. What that means is they came into their time of worship, into their time of church, wanting to be changed. They came in saying, I'm going to worship today with the idea that I'm going to come in as one person and leave a different person. So let me stop there this morning and ask you this question. Did you come with the expectation that I have some changes I need to make in my life and I've come to church to hear God tell me what those changes are so I can make those needed changes to be more like Him? 
And what this means is preparation. So let me ask you this morning, it's a little easier for you because you don't go to the early service, but I hammered the early service that the only thing they may have been thinking about is getting that cup of coffee. How about you this morning? Were you coming in with this sense that I am going to be changed by the Word of God that's going to be taught to me today? They were open. They were fertile ground to receive. I'm teachable. I'm ready, God. I want to learn from you today something that I didn't know about you and about me and my mission in this world that I hadn't known before. I want to know it. And I want to receive it with open arms. They received it openly. Number two, notice what the next thing they did. They received it eagerly. They received it eagerly. And so they were excited about it. Now, This is a great opportunity right now to talk about eagerness. How many of you right now, and I'm speaking to you very pointedly this morning, how many of you right now are are wishing this was over? Now, you're not going to tell anybody that. I know you're not going to raise your hand because that would be offensive to me, and then we would have an issue and have to have some talks about it. But how many of you right now, listen, have already checked out with regards to the preaching of the Word? How many of you are already thinking, this is taking altogether too long? This is boring. He's not making any sense. I don't need this. And the reason why I bring it up, listen, if you're a non-believer, if you're not a Christian, you have every right to say that right now. He's too long. It doesn't affect me. I don't get what he's talking about. This is a bore. Makes total sense. So if you're a guest here and a visitor and you have not come to a realization that you need Jesus as a Savior, you have every right to think that of me. I take no offense of it. But if you say you love Jesus and you say that you've put your hope and trust not just in this world but in the world to come on this person and work of Jesus Christ and you've come to a service that the whole focus is is pointed to him and announcing and proclaiming to him of the greatness of what he's done and is doing and will do for us, not only now but in the days to come. It is altogether like me going to an award ceremony for my wife, Amanda. She's going to be the recipient of an award. And people are going to get up and share of her accolades. And I'm sitting at the head table. And there, person after person comes up, Amanda, we want to talk about what a great mom Amanda is. And we want to talk about what a great wife Amanda is. And what a great pastor's wife she is. And what a great Christian and neighbor. And people keep coming up. And I throw up my arms like, enough already! I don't want to hear about this lady anymore. Haven't we heard enough? I know. Who cares? Well, wait a minute. There's a problem. How can I say I love her and not relish when people talk about her? And some of us in this place, and I'm being really honest with you this morning, some of you say you love Jesus and can't stand more than 10 minutes of hearing about him. Can I tell you something? There's something wrong with your love. And there's something wrong with my love when the things of the person we say we love bore us to death. And we got to be careful with that. The Bereans eagerly wanted to hear the word of God. They came prepared and ready to receive the word of God because they wanted to know what was God's love letter to them. God wrote us a letter and I want to know it. Number three, they searched the scriptures carefully. Carefully. They heard what Paul said and they went home and they looked into it themselves. 
They wanted to know. They wanted to see it for themselves. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to look at the Old Testament and say, okay, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says that we can know that from the Old Testament. And so what they did is they gathered together because none of them had the written word and they would gather together in groups and they would say, okay, what was that psalm again? Psalm 22. Now the the Savior has to suffer. The Savior will even say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does Isaiah 53 say? Someone remind us, what does Isaiah 53 say? Oh, it it says that he's a lamb that's going to go to slaughter. Well, Paul says that Jesus was a lamb that went to the slaughter. It was Jesus on the cross who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they go back and they see if what Paul was saying was true. Now, one of the things we've got to be careful with is that what happens is, is that we take this verse and we use it as a license to critique the preacher or teacher or small group leader who's leading us. Well, I'm just being a good Berean. And a good Berean makes the teacher or preacher's life miserable. And I'm going to question everything that they say. This is not a questioning of the teacher in a critical way. It is taking what they say and believing it, but wanting to see it for themselves. So if you think, well, I'm being a Berean because I'm critiquing what Tim said or what whoever said is right or wrong, There's a place for that, and it should be done with humility and respect. But what the Bereans are doing is they're seeking to affirm what Paul has said through the Scriptures with their own eyes. To be able to do that, we need to study the word daily. Daily. They went to the Scriptures. It wasn't like, and listen, (laughs) as soon as I'm finished up, you guys will write your third point, and the Bibles will close as if I'm done. I never told you we were done, but you guys do it, and I hear it, and it grieves me greatly, and Amanda helps me with it, and I'm in counseling about it, okay? And it wouldn't really bother me, but I know deep down inside that some of you won't open that Bible again until I say next Sunday, go ahead and open to the book of Acts. And that grieves my heart. Because listen, here's what I know as a pastor. I will fall to every sort of sin. And I will destroy my family. And I will destroy this church's testimony. And I will uh, walk all over the name of Christ when I am not walking in fellowship with God and His Word. And we've got to be careful of that. And so study the Word daily. That's why we have small groups built as we do. Those are the reasons why we do those things. And so we need to do it. Finally, they did so expectantly. I am way out of time, I know. So let's just move through this quickly. Expectantly, the idea is is they believed that what they were studying was going to change their life. Do you believe that, brother or sister? Do you believe that what you're studying in the Word will change your life? Do you believe that the words of abundance and the words of blessing and the words of peace and joy and compassion that God has declared to you could change your life? Do you believe the book of Acts that was written 2,000 years ago has a way to set you free? The Bereans believed it, and it says they believed Jesus as a result. When we are in relationship with the Word, we will grow in a greater relationship with Jesus. That leads to a third thing, very quickly. When we go about discovering disciples, when we develop them into the Word, we don't want them to become sponges that never get squeezed out. We want to send them into the world. We want to deploy them. Uh, Darnell talked about how to deploy you in doing orphan care ministry that pleases our God in heaven. 
And we want to deploy you to do that ministry. But a couple reminders as we send you out into a new week. As you go out to share the good news of Jesus Christ, there are three reminders that I want you to remember. Number one, ministry is hard work. It's not a holiday. Paul enters into Thessalonica and Berea, and if you were to Google, and we don't have time today to do it, but you could get images right on your computer screen uh, of especially Thessalonica. It is a gorgeous town. You want a vacation there. And what we hear is nothing of Paul vacationing. What we hear him doing is doing the work. And some of us have built this life that it's all about us. It's vacation for us. Even when we're working, it's about us. And what ministry is about is the hard work of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in small ways and also in big ways to the world around us. We have a job to do. We have been left here to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Number two, it means we're going to have to count the cost. We're going to have to count the cost. Let's bring up Jason in the middle of the text. Jason doesn't sound like a very biblical name, but it is, right? Some of you are like, I had no idea there was a Jason in the Bible. And Jason, all he does, listen, he's the behind-the-scenes guy. He opens his home and shows hospitality to the missionary team. And what does it get him? Gets him beaten and thrown in jail. And Jason's like, well, wait a minute, I'm not preaching anything. I'm just being a follower of Jesus Christ, and he's being a good one. And we need to recognize, no matter what role we play, small or large, we need to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, because at times, even the most noble things we do will bring an attack by the opposition. And we've got to be ready for that. And we see Jason stand firm and stand tall and he shares his message and he shares what's going on in his life to the magistrates and to the leaders and he does not crumble under opposition. And we need to be ready for that. This week you're going to share the love of Jesus Christ with someone, maybe even in a small way, and someone's going to say, who do you think you are? Or why do you think you need to do that for me? And recognize at times we're going to have to count the cost, sometimes even greater than just a rebuke from someone. Finally, we see that when we go to discover, when we develop, and when we deploy disciples, some will believe, some will receive it, others will reject it. So we see this dichotomy of the response. The first part of the dichotomy is that people receive it. We see over and over again the text, many believed, many believed. Women believed, men believed, Greeks believed, Jews believed. Many people believed. But we also know that amidst that, many rejected. And we need to recognize this this morning that when we go out into the world this week and we take a step of faith for God, there will be people who will believe. We will turn the world upside down. But as we turn the world upside down, people are going to fight us. And they're going to respond, notice the word, with agitation and disruption. And they're going to hurt us physically. They're going to hurt us emotionally. They're going to do everything in our power to try to stop us. Why? Because the world doesn't want to be turned upside down. The world is content in their sin and in their selfishness. And we come and what we do, listen, and I'll close with this. We bring a different king to the table. When we preach the gospel, we say to the world, you're not king. I'm not king. The only one who is king is King Jesus. And what you are articulating is a coup to the world. You're saying stop worshiping and adoring yourself and bow the knee to Jesus. You think people are going to get offended by that? You better believe it. But the power of Almighty God allows when that word is spoken that the hearts of people will melt and some will believe. And this week there are some, in quotes, some people 
who need to hear the gospel, who are ready. They don't even know it. They're ready to receive it. And they've said, not me, never will happen. And they, just like our friend, will be sitting at the dining room table of the pastor having a two-hour discussion that Jesus Christ died for him and wants to give him eternal life. And we need to engage that. And we need to be a part of that. Because when we do, my friends, we will make a difference. We will turn the world upside down.